Grace and peace to each of you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we are going to look at a very compelling passage, the gospel reading in Luke. To kind of set the context for you a little bit, this is a period of time in the last few months before Jesus enters Jerusalem to be betrayed and to meet the cross and the resurrection. And he is traveling from the north down south, going through little villages, and there are hundreds of these, a small village, most of them had 50 to 150 people, and he would stop at them and heal and speak with his disciples, and then he'd move on. He kind of was making this circuit, coming south to Jerusalem. It was his habit on the Sabbath that He would speak. Jesus, by this time, is a celebrity. When people hear Jesus is coming, this is the most entertainment that you're going to see this year. This is the person who heals people, who speaks like nobody ever spoke. You don't want to miss Jesus. So when he came, everybody was eager to welcome him, and he would stay for maybe a day and speak in their synagogues. And it was common for somebody after the synagogue meeting, and after Jesus had been invited to speak and give the homily, that he would be invited afterwards to the home of somebody who was of influence in the community, and there'd be a community sort of welcome, okay? And so it is that we get to verse 1, where it says, one Sabbath when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So he's at the home of this ruler, but it's a sort of uncomfortable welcome there. You may recall the Pharisees, of course. In the Gospels, they're kind of an uneven presentation of their differing approaches to Jesus. Uh, Some actually believed. Some were pretty neutral. And then there were those who were outright hostile, particularly the further south you got. And so uh, it's a certain wariness here. When they watch him carefully, they're thinking, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? Is he going to do something to embarrass us? Well... It's interesting because when Jesus comes, he's actually uh, welcomed first by the whole community. Now, just to give you an idea of the protocol here, if you came to the Pharisee's house, if he was a ruler, he was probably wealthy enough to have a two-story house, maybe not, and there would be a little wooden or stone fence around. Everything was made of stone. All the buildings and everything were all stone, big rocks piled up on each other. And outside in the courtyard would be an area where the community could kind of gather, and they could meet with Jesus and each other and just sort of get a taste of the great man, you know? And as this is happening, and they're coming to Jesus, and they're talking about, oh, that was a nice sermon, and all these things. And behold, like, looky here, there was a man before him, right in front of him, who had dropsy. 
Now, what I want you to do today is don't wait for an outline from me, because what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to join me in getting into your mental movie theater, so you can kind of imagine what goes on here. Uh, that's a better way to kind of get the feel for this text, because there are a lot of nuances that when you're in your mental movie theater, you catch, that maybe you don't just reading through it quickly. So here's this person that's standing before Jesus in the crowd, and dropsy is a, not a term we use today too much. It refers to a condition where your body is swollen up. It could be due to kidney failure. It could be due to congestive heart failure. Any number of different things can make your body just bloat. Uh, I'm sure there are people in this congregation that have a condition like that because of taking prednisone or whatever it might be, but it's an uncomfortable and difficult and undesirable ailment. So this guy just comes and he just stands in front of Jesus. We're not told what he wants, but we can kind of guess. And it says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Now, this is really interesting because the lawyers and Pharisees hadn't said anything. But remember, they're watching. So here they are crowded in this little courtyard and the Pharisees are kind of around and the lawyers are there too. The lawyers are also called the scribes in the older Bibles. They were the people whose whole lives, day and night, were dedicated to learning, interpreting, uh, inscribing the Word of God. And of all the people in the world, they were the most profound explainers and authorities on what the Word of God meant. And there they were. Somehow Jesus wasn't intimidated by this, but they're staring at him. And he sees the question in their eye, they're wondering what he's going to do. So he looks at them and he just kind of opens up their minds. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It's the Sabbath day. And this is a good question because immediately it puts the Pharisees and scribes sort of on the defensive on the one hand, they know that the scriptural text, text, the Old Testament, it was known as the Torah then, uh, did not in any way prohibit healing on the Sabbath. It had, it had various regulations about healing, but that wasn't one of them. On the other hand, in their eagerness to be very, very rigorous, they had invented a whole lot of sub-rules that were meant to be followed as a means of being true to the Old Testament law. And one of their man-made rules was that you cannot heal on the Sabbath. So on the one hand, well, no, the Bible doesn't say it's forbidden, but our law that we follow says it's forbidden. So which do we follow? And they don't know what to say, so they say nothing. Silence is a big theme of Luke. When Jesus speaks... People tend to be silent. <laughs> it's like new thinking, difficult thinking. And so that's what happens here. So Jesus took the man with the dropsy. That is, he touched him. And the Pharisees are going, He's now ritually uncleaned. He touched a man that we consider unclean, that would never be allowed in our house. And now Jesus has got the same thing. But then it says that Jesus healed him. 
Very matter of fact. I love the sort of quiet understatement of that. And then it says that he sent him away, and the man went back to his home. And he says to the Pharisees and scribes, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they cannot reply to these things. In other words, if it's forbidden to do acts of mercy on the Sabbath, what could possibly justify any act on the Sabbath? They don't know what to say. They're thinking about this, and they think, I think it's time for dinner. Yes. So that's scene one outside the courtyard. So now in your movie theater, they enter into the doors, and the crowds kind of hang around. Uh, They can maybe hear some of this. Uh, And they go in, and there's a particular room to set up for the invitees for the dinner, and that is scribes and Pharisees only. Okay, that's not an open house. And they go in there, and they sit. Now, here's a, lot, here's a little word about the protocol there. Uh, they would come into the dining room, and there would be this table that was like a sort of a U-shaped uh, device, or a table. It was only about a foot high, just a little off the ground. And then uh, they would seat themselves For an event like this, there would be cushions around this triclinium, it was called, this table, and they would kind of recline on the cushion on their left elbow with their feet kind of going out diagonally, and then with their right hand, they would take the food and feed themselves. There'd be somebody over here, somebody over here. Well, when they came in, it was very common in the Roman and Jewish world then that you were seated appropriately to the honor due to you. This is a little different from our wedding receptions where you go and you find your name put on a table somewhere where people try and group you with your friends. This is a, a very important issue. When you bring this Pharisees and scribes together in their unique elite world, because there's not that many of them, and they're all hyper-committed to a drastic lifestyle that has been costly to them, and which is 100% of their waking hours is doing precisely everything by their laws, okay? So they come in, and an event like this sort of reinforces themselves, their purity laws, their dietary laws, they all are following their hand-washing in just the right way as they come in the room. And this is all going on. And Jesus is watching. And finally they're seated. And Jesus is the guest of honor. Because as the speaker, this whole thing, remember, he's a celebrity that's supposed to be the reason for the entire event. He is on the left side of the host, which would be the head Pharisee. And then the other people would be kind of down the sideways like this. And the further away, that was the least amount of honor. Howdy, you don't have much honor. The thing is, now, how do you get honor anyway? Well, there was two ways that you could earn honor at these events. One was being in the right group. 
And fortunately, all these guys were in the right group. So they actually got into the room and they got at least to get to the meal. That was a big thing. That was no small thing. I mean, they would stake their introductions to people on, hi, I'm Joe the Pharisee, who gets in and you don't. Uh, so that's part of it. The other part is the principle of reciprocity. In other words, you're allowed in, and depending on how much you can do for the host in repayment, that's sort of an indication of how much honor you deserve. Okay? Reciprocity and being in the right group. Every time a Pharisee did something that was honorific towards somebody else, it came with an obligation attached. I expect something back. I expect to be at your house. I expect to get the best slice of roast beef when I'm there. And so there was this endless back and forth, trying to one-up one another. Here's Jesus, and he's watching all this. What's interesting is now Jesus is doing the watching. (laughs) And so he decides to speak to them about this. He told them a parable to all those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. He got assigned to his seat, and the host would have done it to everybody else, but he's watching this sort of musical chairs that happens. He notices that somebody sits down here, and the host looks and goes, so he has to go over and say, I'm sorry, you're in seat number six, not seat number three, because Joe over here just showed up, and he's a three-seater. Okay? And so there would be this, on the other hand, people would get shuffled, and the, the host would come through, and of course, that would be shameful. Oh, 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 I sat in the wrong chair, and I'm down at the bottom of the barrel. And Jesus notices this, and he's kind of, I think Jesus is having a good time. I really do. I think he's kind of, kind of sees this sort of weird thing. I wonder what he'd think if he came to our rituals. And so he comes, and he sees this, and he just tells them out loud by means of a parable. He says, okay, uh, this is kind of to give a little distance, to make it a little less pointed, a little gentler to say this. He talks about a wedding feast, but everybody knows he's talking about what he has just been watching. And he says to them, well, you know, I noticed that you uh, sit down, and if you're sitting in the wrong seat, then the host comes and says, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited... And he gives this piece of advice. Go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, oh, friend, move on up higher. Then you will be honored. Now, I bet the people hearing this think Jesus is pretty naive. Do you think they haven't figured this out before now? It only takes one mistake before you walk in. I'm surprised that at every one of these dinners, and they had lots of them, that everybody didn't kind of go stand around vying for the lowest seat so they could get the opportunity to be raised up. So Jesus is not seeming to really be saying anything. In fact, the way he says it sort of makes it look silly. Just sometimes just saying something makes it look what it is. 
And Jesus is not really particularly interested in fixing their protocols. I mean, I was really deeply entrenched in, in the society. They, they couldn't even see it. But he decides that this is a parable, and he wants to teach them a lesson about their lives in the kingdom of God. And so he tells them, everyone who, is, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what's he saying? There's three things that Jesus recognizes with this. He recognizes, and I love him for this, he recognizes that we each need to be exalted, to be affirmed, to be validated. We are creatures. We are made beings. We need to be told we're doing well. What was the first thing that was said in creation when God made man? It is good. Right? And throughout the whole scriptures, we see that God recognizes this. And so that's a good thing. However, he also, in this statement, recognizes that in trying to meet the need of being exalted, we sometimes exalt ourselves. And when we do that, maybe it's because we try to manipulate others so they sort of end up below us, or we kind of earn some praise or some kind of honorific thing from them because we do something for them. It's interesting. I was trying to think, what's an example of how pitiful and useless it is to exalt yourself? That's a big cultural Huge cultural ethic. Listen to the songs. It's all about loving yourself. What is the greatest love of all? Loving yourself, says the song. Boy, exalt yourself. What does that get you? I was thinking about this, and my cats were in the room. You ever do that, thinking with cats walking around, leaping on things and stuff? I got two cats. And they're young, and they're energetic. And I was watching one of them who suddenly, for some reason, got interested in his tail and started chasing it and going in circles and circles, trying to catch up with his own tail. Does that sound kind of futile to you? That's what exalting yourself is. It's worthless. It's empty. You end up with nothing when you go around exalting yourself. It is a pitiful humiliating thing to be seen doing it, and you don't even know it. And oh, we've all done it. So here's the thing, though. God recognizes that that doesn't work, but here's the best thing. God recognizes that he alone can give the affirmation that satisfies. Because when Jesus says, for, who, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, there's an invisible new host there. And the host is God. And that is the one who will be humbling. And who humbles himself will be exalted by the invisible new host, God himself. God wants to exalt 
us. That's controversial. If you don't understand that correctly. We were made to be creatures of great glory in his image. The word glory throughout the Bible is seen as this north star that we're headed for if we're going in the right direction. It is the approval of God because of the beauty of us. The cross, the resurrection, the humiliation of Christ, his work by the Holy Spirit, convicting our hearts, bringing us to repentance, all that takes place so that God can so transform us that the day will one day come when we who are sinners every Sunday in here confessing our sins rightly, but one day we will not be sinners. We will be transformed. And the Bible says that God will not be satisfied until he looks at us and examines us with the seeing eye that knows all of us and every bit of us and says to us, perfect. You're just perfect. That's what he is doing with the gospel is transforming us into those perfect beings. That is our validation. Well done, thou good and faithful servants. Jesus made that promise. Be ye perfect as your Father is perfect. And we go, well, blah. But that is what God will do. Nothing less will do with God. There are no sinners in the corner kind of getting a, a leftovers from a meal. They aren't in heaven if they're not perfect. And God makes them that way by his grace. I think sometimes about... Uh, Church workers. You know you get discouraged sometimes as a pastor, as a church worker, whatever your thing is, you know? Sometimes you feel like nobody notices or they complain. Uh, it's always fun when you pour your heart in a sermon and you go out there and somebody finds three things wrong with it. Really helpful, you know? And yet they're usually right. You know it. I know it. And the thing is, the key to being a Christian servant is that, yes, we listen to other people's feedback, but really we do it for God. We do it to honor God. We do that the God will be known. We do it as a partnership with God because it's fun to team up with God. And what God says of us is what counts. What other people say is, okay, you know. And by the way, let's not be a church. I'm not saying this is a church like that. Let's be affirmers, okay? <laughs> Let's not wait for God to speak from heaven. Let's go ahead and be the people of God speaking affirmation to one another. So that's scene two. Being exalted. Being humbled so you will be exalted. And then in scene three, Jesus is talking to the host. He's sitting next to the host. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors, in other words, all the people that are here, lest they also invite you in return. That's reciprocity again, and you'd be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, and the crippled, and the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God always picks up the tab for the unlovable one that you reach out to and love, knowing you're not getting anything back. God picks up the tab for that. There's two things in this. One is beware the fool's gold of being too desperate to be in an inner circle. Inner circles, you know what I mean by that? The people you really want to have, accept, like you, invite you. Those people, it could be your family, it could be at work, it could be a subset, tiny, tiny group of people maybe. Your inner circle is of exceedingly powerful influence. So many of our children, we wonder, why don't they stay with the faith? It's because they found an inner circle where that was not of value, and they longed to be in it. Somebody else. He says, beware of that. It's okay to have a inner friends, close people, family. Don't let that be the only thing that you have, or it will be your God. But the other thing he says is, do invite the people that are unlovable, that would never make it into your inner circle, that you don't really care if they show up in your life at all. Like these people. They would unlikely, be unlikely to even respond to a dinner invitation because they know they couldn't repay. <laughs> the blind, the crippled. It reminded me of an event I was at, and we're getting to the end here, where I was speaking at a uh, wonderful women's group in another church in town that was uh, having a meeting to gather support for people with developmental disabilities, intellectual, physical disabilities. I happened to work for an agency that supported that kind of situation, so I was speaking, and, and very kindly, they thought to invite some people with developmental disabilities to join in their meeting. And it was about this size, maybe 40, 50 people, and, and those people came in with their wheelchairs and everything, they kind of sat in the front, and they were introduced, well, looky here, we got people. And everybody started clapping, this is great, you know? Yeah, it was kind of nice. I thought, that's good. I'm glad they're here. They're trying to do things to support this. This is a good thing. All of this is good. And then after it was all over, we had our lunch, just like Jesus here. And so we all headed out for the potluck. It was a little buffet. It's in another room. And I kind of came in last because I was dawdling. And when I got there, I looked at the tables. And there was everybody... They'd gone through the buffet line. They're all eating their food. And over here was the table that had the people with the disabilities. They were completely separate. There was this giant wall between everybody and that table. And I realized I never saw anybody speak to them when they arrived or when they went out, and they're not speaking to them now. In theory, in sentiment, the heart was right, the people were afraid of them. When you meet with a person who's got a severe disability, it can be messy. It can be difficult. So I grabbed my food, and I thought, like, boy, somebody's got... So I went over to sit with them, and I grabbed another person who's a friend of mine. I said, hey, let me introduce you to somebody. And so she brought her little meal over, and seeing that, I got another one or two, and they came over and they sort of 
But bless their hearts, they came and sat down. And they sat next to the kid with the hockey helmet and all this. And you know something? They had a great time. You know, they never would have done that except to sort of kind of get out of their inner circle and go love the unlovable and welcome them to your dinner by actually eating with them. That was a wonderful day for me to see that happen. Very affirming for all concerned. God wants our lives to be filled with that. You have people in your life, you just run the other way when you see. I do too. That happened in the store this week. I saw somebody and I kind of turned around and I thought, oh no, I'm preaching a sermon. I've got to go say hi. And uh, I saw him in the parking lot said hi. Uh, but the, the inner circle has to be broken. You know, that's kind of the sermon. Because why? Because you will be repaid at the resurrection. Jesus sees every act of kindness. I was thinking afterwards, did Jesus ever host a dinner? Um, Can you think of any dinner that Jesus might have hosted in his life? What? The Last Supper. Yeah, he waited till the end, but he got it in, okay? And he had his group, and it was an inner group. And this was the day that he would be betrayed in a matter of minutes and sent to trial and the whole event of the cross. So this is a very, very important dinner, as you know. And you wonder, how did he see people? And I looked at this, and the Bible doesn't really tell us where everybody was seated But there are two people that we knew who were seated, and we know who Jesus placed in the seat of honor. Do you know who was seated in the place of honor at the Jesus banquet, the one he hosted? Who? Judas Iscariot. The last person that Jesus would have had any since, uh, I mean, Jesus knew what was going on. That Jesus would have thought, this guy is just lovable. I just hope we can just hang out here, you know? And the other side was John, because you remember he talked to John. But I just wonder, was Jesus there trying one last effort to reach out, to kind of affirm him, to say, you can be this to me? And Jesus got up, and went out into the night. The terrible, awful rejection of Jesus who wanted him in the seat of honor. And yet, it's a story for us. He wasn't held back by a contrived who gets important in my life and who isn't. He loved them all. Lord, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Amen.